Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Radio Estros, Episode 60, The Winds of Winter Primer, Part 6, The Stormlands. Spoilers all books! Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Radio Estros. I'm Lady Guinevere, and with me today is my co-host, Yoke Boy. Yeah, hi there everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in. Today we continue to discuss the winds of winter as we set our sights on the Stormlands and consider what will happen in the region, specifically with the invasion by John Connington, Aegon and the Golden Company in the upcoming novel. We have a packed episode, folks, covering so many talking points. Isn't that right, Lady Gwyn? Yeah, that's right. Uh, first of all, we will have a recap of the pertinent chapters. So two John Connington chapters from A Dance with Dragons, and then two Ariane sample chapters will be analyzed. This is the Winds of Winter Primer, after all. And then we'll give the lowdown on a theory many people in the fandom take as granted. This is, of course, the Blackfire conspiracy that purports young Griff to be a secret Blackfire rather than a Targaryen. Are fans right to be so confident about this theory? We'll gather the evidence and you can decide for yourselves. And after that, we'll discuss the situation at Storm's End, where another intriguing mystery arises. Following discussions on the possible alliance between Ariane and Aegon, and who Aegon's friends in the Reach might be, we'll look at a Septa with a secret. Septa Lamore is certainly not who she says she is, and we'll assess the likely candidates on this character identity mystery. And finally, we'll consider the role of Grayscale in the plot, and ask... Will John Connington be the grayscale patient zero who will infect his own troops at the worst possible time? All in all, today's Winds of Winter Primer contains the perfect blend of character analysis and mysteries to get you thinking about the future of this story we all love so much. 
And before we begin today, it is time to thank our patrons. Radio Estros is supported by patrons, and as always, we want to thank our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Moltude, Pepper, Kelly, Laura, Daniel, John Wargarian, Sister Winter, Seth, and Joel I, the Three-Eyed Bro. Thanks to all of you, and if you enjoy today's episode, please consider being a patron and obtain perks such as shoutouts, early access, and now an invitation to our brand new Discord forum. Look for Radio Westeros at patreon.com, and thanks for supporting us. And now, folks, let's begin this Winds of Winter Primer, Part 6, The Stormlands. The prince wore sword and dagger, black boots polished to a high sheen, a black cloak lined with blood-red silk. With his hair washed and cut and freshly dyed a deep dark blue, his eyes looked blue as well. At his throat he wore three huge square-cut rubies on a chain of black iron, a gift from Magister Illyrio. Red and black, dragon colors. We begin this episode with a recap of the John Connington chapters from A Dance with Dragons. The exiled lord and former hand to Ares II is introduced to us as a POV after Tyrion, our first viewpoint on the boy known as Young Griff and his handlers, was kidnapped by Jorah Mormont in Seloris. In Connington's first chapter, The Lost Lord, the Shy Maid and its crew have arrived at Volon Theris, where the Golden Company sits encamped about a league south of the walled town. Now, one of the main themes of this chapter is trust, or more specifically, John Connington's lack thereof. He doesn't trust Halden Halfmaester, Aegon's tutor and advisor, who allowed Tyrion to escape. He certainly doesn't trust Tyrion, who he thinks has faked his own kidnapping and is somewhere plotting against him. His bitterness over the loss of Tyrion Lannister has no place for empathy or even simply taking the facts of the situation at face value. He thinks, I should have gone myself. He let the dwarf beguile him with that glib tongue of his, let him wander off into a whorehouse alone while he lingered like a mooncalf in the square. I shared the blame. After the dwarf put himself between Aegon and the stone men, I let my guard down. I should have slit his throat the first time I laid eyes on him. As the chapter begins, Halden, Connington and Aegon set out to rendezvous with the Golden Company, which Aegon is already calling his army, and it's soon revealed that Connington doesn't trust their ostensible allies, the men of the Golden Company, either, thinking... Whatever their sires or their grandsires might have been back in Westeros before their exile, the men of the Golden Company were sellswords now, and no sellsword could be trusted. And this isn't limited to the men of the Company, as Connington's thoughts about their Captain General, homeless Harry Strickland, proved to be doubtful, suspicious, and scornful, as we'll see. The theme of trust soon becomes a lesson of sorts to his foster son, who expresses his own doubts about sellswords, revealing to Griff that, quote, 
YOLO warned me to trust no one. Surely Aegon quoting Tyrion Lannister to John Connington, who at this point seems almost as convinced that the dwarf is lurking in the shrubbery as Cersei is back in King's Landing, must have stung. But he does allow that there is some wisdom in that statement. But, thinking about the mistrust and paranoia that gripped Ares II, he moderates Tyrion's advice with some of his own. Not every man is what he seems, and a prince especially has good cause to be wary. But go too far down that road, and the mistrust can poison you, make you sour and fearful. You would do best to walk a middle course. Let men earn your trust with leal service. But when they do, be generous and open-hearted. Connington seems oblivious to the irony that just a moment before he'd been thinking how he ought to have utterly ignored Tyrion Lannister's leal service of saving the prince and possibly have killed him, let him die in the river, or at least continued with general mistrust. And when the pair walk into the meeting with Strickland and his officers, Connington's thoughts go on in that same vein. His dislike of Harry Strickland, who was a different sort of man from his predecessor, Connington's good friend, Miles Toyne. His anger at Varys for insisting that he sacrifice his honor to this scheme to raise Aegon in hiding. And his extreme wariness of the officers of the Golden Company, some of whom greeted him with what he sensed to be knives behind their smiles. These doubts crystallize as he surveys his allies. Ghosts and liars, revenants from forgotten wars, lost causes, failed rebellions, a brotherhood of the failed and the fallen, the disgraced and the disinherited. This is my army. This is our best hope. How discouraging and distasteful this situation must be for John Connington, a man who was once a high lord of Westeros, friend to the crown prince, the king's hand and general, and clearly proud of his heritage, who is racked by guilt over his own failures, as we'll see, and who Ariane Martel's sworn sword Damon Sand will characterise in this way. Proud for a certainty, even arrogant, a faithful friend to Rhaegar, but prickly with others. Robert was his liege, but I've heard it said that Connington chafed at serving such a lord. Even then, Robert was known to be fond of wine and whores. And obviously, his devotion to Rhaegar and the boy he thinks is Rhaegar's son have overcome a lot if he's been willing to bow down to the demands of Varys's plot and serve with men such as these, whom he largely scorns, and allow his own reputation to go the way of Robert Baratheon's, though with more oblivion added. And so it's through Griff's eyes that we're introduced to the legendary Golden Company, Heirs to the implacable warrior Bittersteel, Sir Franklin Flowers, a bastard of House Fossaway, who was previously known to Connington, handles the introductions. It says, Some of the sellsword captains bore bastard names, as Flowers did, Rivers, Hill, Stone. Others claimed names that had once loomed large, 
in the histories of the Seven Kingdoms, Griff counted two strongs, three peaks, a mud, a mandrake, a losten, a pair of coals. Not all were genuine, he knew. In the free companies, a man could call himself whatever he chose. And not all of the company were of Westerosi descent. Others include the summer islander Black Black, who commanded the archers, the Valentine paymaster, Goris Edorin, and the Lysini spymaster, Lysono Mar. And the Golden Company included elephants, two dozen of them, Harry Strickland's pride and joy, about whom Connington thinks approvingly, there is not a warhorse in all of Westeros that will stand against them. When the attention of the company turns to Griff's son, he knows the time is right to reveal the boy's identity and the purpose of their upcoming mission. No man could have asked for a worthier son, but the lad is not of my blood, and his name is not Griff. My lords, I give you Aegon Targaryen, first-born son of Rhaegar, Prince of Dragonstone, by Elia of Dawn. Soon, with your help, to be Aegon, the sixth of his name, King of the Andals, the Rhoynar, and the First Men, and Lord of the Seven Kingdoms. For all the drama and flourish of that introduction, it says that it was greeted with silence. It was at this point that Connington realizes they know, they've known all along. Strickland then reveals that he had to tell the officers when they arrived at Volontheris. They had broken a contract with Mir for the first time in their history, and then Strickland failed to accept an unprecedented offer from a Yukish envoy in Volantis to join their campaign to Marine. That news doesn't bode well for Daenerys, and we shouldn't forget that at this time, Connington still hoped to adhere to Varys and Illyrio's plan to join forces with Danny for the invasion of Westeros. Strickland tells Connington that the Yunkai came west to Volantis to hire four sellsword companies. Three had already been sent east, and it was hoped the Golden Company would be the fourth. This is a reference to something we'll learn about from Daenerys and Baristan's viewpoints later in A Dance with Dragons, that the Company of the Cat, the Windblown, and the Long Lances would eventually join the Second Sons in Marine on the side of Yunkai. And so the discussion turns to Daenerys, whom Illyrio had led the men gathered here to believe would be coming west to meet them. And indeed, that was his expectation when he sent Captain Grolio to collect her and her entourage in Carth. But like Doran Martell with Arianne, Illyrio has learned the danger inherent in not sharing his plans with the person who was expected to play a key role in them. Daenerys did not come west to meet the Golden Company. She stopped in Slaver's Bay to win an army of her own and stayed to rule Marine out of a sense of obligation and a desire to remake the social fabric of the region. Where that left her was soon to be beset by the Yunkish, the legions of New Gis, the Talosi, those Essosi sellsword companies, and soon enough the Volantine Navy. The Golden Company, waiting on a riverbank northeast of Volantis, might as well have been on the moon. 
Lysono Ma declares that a sea voyage is out of the question. There simply aren't enough ships willing to transport 10,000 men with their squires, horses and elephants into the volatile region of Slaver's Bay. And as for the land route that would take them via the Demon Road, a notoriously dangerous route that would pass far too close to some of the cities allied with the Yonkish, Danny appears to be stranded in Marine, and as she won't come west herself, Strickland concludes, it grieves me to say it, but Magister Illyrio and his friends may have been unwise to put so much hope on this child queen. It was then that Aegon spoke up. Then... Put your hopes on me. Daenerys is Prince Rhaegar's sister, but I am Rhaegar's son. I am the only dragon that you need. Connington expresses caution, but Franklin Flowers approves. But whereas moments earlier Harry Strickland had scorned Daenerys unsullied as bed slaves with sticks and her dragons as mere hatchlings, he suddenly finds her and her army indispensable. Rhaegar's sister has dragons. Rhaegar's son does not. We do not have the strength to take the realm without Daenerys and her army, her unsullied. But while Strickland may well be guilty of some of the things Connington thinks about him, being weak, sounding like an old woman, afraid to fight, etc., he does make one very good point in an effort to stop the tide of opinion from turning towards Aegon's proposal. We need the girl. We need the marriage. If Daenerys accepts our princeling and takes him for her consort, the Seven Kingdoms will do the same. Without her, the lords of Westeros will only mock his claim and brand him a fraud and pretender. But by that point, it's too late. Most of the captains of the Golden Company are men of action, and the tide has swung towards doing something with Aegon from doing nothing while waiting for Daenerys, or, in her absence, new instructions from Magister Illyrio, who they scornfully refer to as the Fat Man, whose plan, quote, changes every time the moon turns. And so, Tristan Rivers makes a stirring speech about how ripe Westeros is for an invasion, Coddington claims Dorne will support them, and Laswell Peak mentions his friends in the Reach. And so, Aegon wins his army, and it says, One by one, the men of the Golden Company rose, knelt, and laid their swords at the feet of his young prince. The last to do so was homeless Harry Strickland, blistered feet and all. Relieved to finally be taking action, Connington sends for Rolly Duckfield and Septa Lamore. Yandri and Izilla would be released from service, but the others would accompany Aegon on his journey west. Finally alone at the end of the chapter, Connington reveals the consequences of saving Tyrion from the river at the Bridge of Dream to the reader. He's been infected with grayscale and he knows his days are numbered. Death he knew, but slow. I still have time. A year, two years, five. Some stone men live for ten. Time enough to cross the narrow sea to see Griffin's roost again. 
to end the usurper's line for good and all and put Rhaegar's son upon the Iron Throne. Then Lord John Connington could die content. The castle rose from the shores of Cape Wrath on a lofty crag of dark red stone surrounded on three sides by the surging waters of Shipbreaker Bay. Its only approach was defended by a gatehouse, behind which lay the long bare ridge the Conningtons called the Griffin's Throat. To force the throat could be a bloody business, since the ridge exposed the attackers to the spears, stones, and arrows of defenders in the two round towers that flanked the castle's main gates. And once they reached those gates, the men inside could pour boiling oil on their heads. Griff expected to lose a hundred men, perhaps more. They lost four. At the end of the previous chapter, John Connington's thoughts turned to reclaiming his lands, his name, and his honour. Lost, in his estimation, at the Battle of the Bells during Robert's Rebellion, which haunted him to this day. His second A Dance with Dragons chapter, The Griffin Reborn, picks up with the Golden Company arriving in the Stormlands. Having set out from Essos on board ten Volantine ships, six have arrived at Cape Wrath, including 600 of the company's thousand archers, but none of their elephants. The other four ships are assumed either lost or landed elsewhere. The fact that the exiled lord and his company of sellswords felt free to land in the Stormlands, and in fact chose it as their optimal jumping-off point, speaks volumes about the state of Westeros, though. It says that only a few years ago he would never have dared attempt a landing on Cape Wrath. The Stormlords were too fiercely loyal to House Baratheon and to King Robert. But with both Robert and his brother Renly slain, everything was changed— Stannis was too harsh and cold a man to inspire much in the way of loyalty, even if he had not been half a world away, and the Stormlands had little reason to love House Lannister. It goes on to say that, quote, John Connington was not without his own friends here. But first would come the retaking of Griffin's Roost, which, as battles go, was pretty anticlimactic. It was over within minutes, it says, the current residents of the castle having allowed the woods to encroach upon the walls, providing cover for the attackers, and the walls and gates being all too sparsely defended. Black Balak's archers prevented any ravens from flying from the maester's tower, and once inside, Franklin Flowers took care of the maester himself. The defenders turned out to consist of a small garrison, of whom only four survived, a handful of servants, and three of Ronit Connington's family, his younger brother Raymond, his sister Aelin, and his natural son, a fierce red-haired boy they called Ronald Storm. The family members were placed under guard to serve as hostages should Ronit return from the Riverlands, and the garrison and small folk made to swear to their newly reinstated lord. Arriving at his home provokes a stream of nostalgia in John Connington. 
A major theme of this chapter is memories of his youth, his father, Rhaegar, and the rebellion. Most of all, his failures. He is haunted, as we said, by the Battle of the Bells. He thinks how his arrogance there caused him to lose all. His lordship, his lands, his roller's hand, and what he hoped was the trust and love he'd earned from Rhaegar with his success. I rose too high, loved too hard, dared too much. I tried to grasp a star, overreached and fell, he thinks. He thinks how he once complained to his friend Miles Toyne that in his efforts to search the town to find Robert, quote, Tywin Lannister himself could have done no more. But Toyne corrected him. There's where you're wrong. Lord Tywin would not have bothered with a search. He would have burned that town and every living creature in it. Men and boys, babes at the breast, noble knights and holy septons, pigs and whores, rats and rebels, he would have burned them all. When the fires guttered out and only ash and cinders remained, he would have sent his men in to find the bones of Robert Baratheon. Later, when Stark and Tully turned up with their host, he would have offered pardons for both of them, and they would have accepted and turned for home with their tails between their legs. It's clear that for years... Connington has turned this battle, the decisions he made, and its outcome, over and over in his mind. The reference to Tywin Lannister and to what he would have done to win the day for Ares, or, as Connington saw it, for Rhaegar, ought to make us take note. And speaking of taking note, we should also mention that the intent to take Storm's End is telegraphed immediately. Once the company is inside Griffin's Roost and Harry Strickland seems to be making himself comfortable, it says Connington had no intention of letting them come. Griffin's Roost was strong but small, and so long as they sat here, they would seem small as well. But there was another castle nearby, vastly larger and impregnable. Take that and the realm will shake. Undoubtedly, this is a reference to Storm's End, and with all the Baratheons away or dead, as noted, the Stormlands certainly seem ripe for the picking. In fact, we're told that with about half the Golden Company now on Cape Wrath, they had split their force into four equal parts, one to take Griffin's Roost, one to take the seat of House Morrigan at Crow's Nest, and one to take the Wild's Rain House. The final group, which included Aegon, had remained in camp at their landing site. The Stormlands, it seems, is about to pay the price for their men having mostly gone off to war with Renly or Stannis, or for having since thrown in with the Lannisters. Not that Connington plans to sack the region, Aegon is, after all, coming to Westeros to rule, and Connington sees Cape Wrath as his home. In an ideal situation, all of their successes would be as easy as the first one at Griffin's Roost, though Connington cautions Harry Strickland against complacency. While the victors secure the castle, Halden appropriates the news to be found in the Ravenry. He tells John everything he can find about what's happening in other regions. The Lannisters make enemies easily, but seem to have a harder time keeping friends. 
Their alliance with the Tyrells is fraying, to judge from what I read here. Queen Cersei and Queen Marjorie are fighting over the little king like two bitches with a chicken bone, and both have been accused of treason and debauchery. Mace Tyrell has abandoned his siege of Storm's End to march back to King's Landing and save his daughter, leaving only a token force behind to keep Stannis's men penned up inside the castle. This must be welcome news to Connington, who is already thinking ahead to Storm's End. He can be sure that Stannis won't be on hand too, since there's also news of the North, as well as the Iron Islands and the Vale. In the North, the Lannisters are relying on the Boltons, and in the Riverlands upon the Freys, both houses long renowned for treachery and cruelty. Lord Stannis Baratheon remains in open rebellion, and the Ironborn of the Islands have raised up a king as well. No one ever seems to mention the Vale, which suggests to me that the Arryns have taken no part in any of this. While few specifics are mentioned about the Reach or the Riverlands, since Mace Tyrell is known to be in King's Landing, we have to assume that the Reach wouldn't be seen as a threat yet. The Riverlands must be widely known to be devastated as the primary battleground of the previous two years of war, which leaves Dorne. Prince Doran's younger son has been betrothed to Myrcella Baratheon, which would suggest that the Dornishmen have thrown in with House Lannister, but they have an army in the Boneway and another in the Prince's Pass, just waiting. Halden continues, We could scarcely have timed our landing better. We have potential friends and allies at every hand. But he points out that potential allies will expect something in return and suggests they offer a reward to those parties. Prince Aegon's Hand a marriage alliance to bring some great house to our banners. Connington insists that Aegon must be preserved for Daenerys, which leads Halden to wonder if he, King Aegon's future hand, might be that prize, perhaps even for the daughter of Prince Doran. But Connington, secretly afflicted with Grayscale, and perhaps even more secretly the gay point-of-view character in A Dance with Dragons that George has yet to confirm the identity of, firmly declines this as an option. But he does request a message be sent to Dorne, and so we see the origin of that letter that Doran later shows Arianne, which we'll discuss more shortly. And then comes the War Council. Word arrives from at least one of the missing ships. Mark Mandrake, with 500 men and some of the elephants, has landed on Estremont and taken Greenstone. And so we now have four Stormlands castles confirmed in Golden Company hands, and Connington sends orders that Mandrake is to leave a garrison on Estremont and take ship for Cape Wrath with the rest of his men, presumably the elephants and any noble captives. With the knowledge we received in A Feast for Crows about Silver Santagar's recent marriage to Lord Estermont, we can assume that the Dornish heiress to the Spotswood will be among those captives. Yes, and we'll get back to that minor detail a little bit later. In the meantime, Connington continues to lay out their plans for the council. He is content, in fact eager, for King's Landing to suppose that their landing on Cape Wrath is, quote, 
no more than an exile lord coming home with some hired swords to reclaim his birthright. An old familiar story, that. He goes on to say that he'll even write to King Tommen with that claim and request a pardon and the restoration of his lands and titles. The intent of this is to give the council a puzzle to think about while Connington sends out word to likely friends in the Stormlands and the Reach. And Dawn, of course. By the time their presence in the Stormlands is noted in Kevin Lannister's epilogue a couple of weeks later, word has reached the capital that Lord Connington has a boy allegedly Rhaegar's son, with him, and that there is talk of them marching on Storm's End. Since the War Council ends with Connington's declaration that they would march for Storm's End on the 11th day, in spite of Harry Strickland's reservations, by the time of Kevin's death, we can assume that march is underway. And four days later... Aegon arrived accompanied by a hundred horse, Septilamore, and his newly minted Kingsguard knight, Sir Raleigh Duckfield. Also in the column are three elephants, which we can draw some conclusions from. It would seem that one of the four missing ships has turned up, since it seems unlikely that Mark Mandrake, who was on one of the missing ships and reported to have landed at Estremont, has arrived quite so quickly. Keep in mind that Connington only sent his orders to Mandrake on the day of the War Council and that Estremont is on the opposite side of Cape Wrath and the Rainwood from Griffin's Roost. It will take Ariane over a week to traverse the Rainwood on horseback, and that without elephants. Even if Mandrake went by ship all the way around Cape Wrath, it would likely be a voyage of many days. Looking ahead just a bit, in the A Dance with Dragons epilogue, Pycelle reports incursions along the coast and islands, including Estamont, Tarth and the Stepstones, which we can take to be the locations of the other three ships and, of course, the rest of Harry Strickland's elephants. With Mandrake presumably on his way, whether to Griffin's Roost or directly to Storm's End, that will leave men on Tarth, who would also presumably be ordered to make their way to the mainland, and men on the Stepstones. Now the interesting thing about the Stepstones is that it's a location often mentioned but never seen. As a frequent hideout for pirates, it's the place Salador San professes he will return to after putting Davos ashore near the Sisters in the Vale, It's also the place Davos has sent Robert's bastard son, Edric Storm, for safekeeping. In A Feast for Crows, Pycelle states that he believes Orain Waters has taken Cersei's Drillmons there to set himself up as a pirate, and this is borne out in Arianne's first sample chapter when Valina Tolland tells of the so-called Lord of the Waters, a new pirate king with a fleet of triple-decked warships. Victarion stops there en route to Slaver's Bay in A Dance with Dragons, and at the wall, Jon Snow hears a rumour of strange ships from the east, somehow connected with dragons. While we don't think there will ever be a viewpoint of the Stepstones, the amount of activity there is interesting to say the least, and we do expect that more news and possibly an intersection of the characters we know to be there will come from that location 
in the Winds of Winter. Now, getting back to Aegon, his arrival with Raleigh Duckfield leads to a reflection of John Connington's disapproval of appointing such a knight to the White Cloaks. But Aegon's response, Duck will die for me if need be, and that's all I require in my Kingsguard, actually echoes the sentiments of a number of his supposed ancestors, from Visenya Targaryen to Jaehaerys I and beyond. The measure of a Kingsguard is not his family name or heritage, but his prowess at arms and devotion to the king. Yeah, and ironically, Aegon cites Jaime Lannister as an example of how noble birth cannot ensure devotion. Not long after Jaime himself points out some of these same facts to Loras Tyrell when showing him the White Book in A Feast for Crows. While Connington may not approve of his erstwhile son's choice, Aegon himself approves of Griffin's roost and its surrounding, telling John Connington, I like your castle. This adds to the flood of memories John has been experiencing during the chapter, many of which center around his friendship with Rhaegar and the events of the rebellion. Your father's lands are beautiful, he said. His silvery hair was blowing in the wind and his eyes were a deep purple, darker than this boy's is the memory in this passage from the time Rhaegar visited Griffin's Roost. Interestingly, this is Connington both making a comparison and drawing a distinction between Rhaegar and Aegon. And one has to wonder how often over the years this has occurred and where that thread of the contrast between the two might take him now that they've returned to Westeros and Aegon is set to begin acting the part of Targaryen princeling. The chapter ends with Aegon revealing that Harry Strickland and Franklin Flowers have revealed Connington's plans for Storm's End to Aegon and Sir Raleigh. Strickland, it would seem, isn't happy with the decision to march and went behind Connington's back to try to convince Aegon that they should delay their move to Storm's End. Connington is furious, but Aegon, it turns out, has learned much from his foster father. He tells John, Harry's an old maid, isn't he? You have the right of it, my lord. I want the attack to go ahead, with one change. I mean to lead it. And so, from John Connington's point of view, thus ended the arc in A Dance with Dragons that began with Tyrion's arrival aboard the Shy Maid back at Goandroi on the Rhoyne in Essos. From the blue-haired sellsword Griff and his young son to the reborn Lord John Connington and his similarly reborn prince, Aegon Targaryen, their arc has inspired a lot of theorizing and even more predictions for the Winds of Winter. Later in the episode, we'll be diving into both of those things. But up next, we'll recap the Ariane Martell sample chapters from The Winds of Winter as she sets out from Sunspear on a mission to evaluate both John Connington and the boy he claims is her cousin, Aegon. On the morning that she left the water gardens, her father rose from his chair to kiss her on both cheeks. The fate of dawn goes with you, daughter, he said as he pressed the parchment into her hand. Go swiftly, go safely, be my eyes and ears and voice. 
but most of all, take care. In A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, Aria Martell had a roller coaster arc in which she went from plotting to crown Marcella Baratheon as Queen of the Seven Kingdoms and overthrow her own father as the ruler of Dorne, to spending weeks as her father's prisoner in a tower at Sunspear, and finally to being let into Doran's confidences and given a role to play in his game of vengeance. Yeah, in A Feast for Crows, when she is released from her tower cell, Ariane learns that her brother Quentin, not on a shadowy mission to the free cities to hire sellswords to steal away her birthright as she had assumed, but on a diplomatic mission of the utmost secrecy aimed at concluding an alliance with Daenerys Targaryen. This alliance, originally meant to be a marriage between Viserys and Ariane, had first been agreed to by Sir Willem Darry and Prince Oberyn Martell in Bravos when Danny was very young. And it was this very alliance that had led to Doran secretly grooming Quentin as his heir, which in turn led to Arianne's resentment and ultimately her Queenmaker plot. Now, by the end of A Dance with Dragons, the cards are on the table, and at the end of Ario Hota's The Watcher chapter, Doran shares with his daughter that he's had tidings from Lys. A great fleet has put in there to take on water, Volantine ships chiefly carrying an army, no word as to who they are or where they might be bound. There was talk of elephants. While Doran insists that it is too early to know if this is Daenerys coming to Westeros, he is clearly in a state of great hope and tells his daughter that the landing place of this fleet will be revealing, saying, Quentin will bring her up the green blood if he can. He also tells her that while her cousins, the Sand Snakes, were being sent off on their respective missions, her place for now was by his side as his heir. However, he adds that, quote, Soon enough, you'll have another task. So, when A Dance with Dragons ended, it was obvious that Doran was holding his heir back for a mission of even greater importance than the ones he had sent his nieces on. When discussing their assignments, he had also told the Sand Snakes, If certain things should come to pass... I will send word to each of you. Things can change quickly in the Game of Thrones. And while this is no doubt a reference to Quentin's mission, which was playing out in Slaver's Bay, even as he spoke those words, one has to wonder what his plans for Arianne were at the time. That's right, because by the time we see Arianne again, in her first The Winds of Winter preview chapter, one of two Ariane chapters that were moved from A Dance with Dragons to The Winds of Winter, things have changed. As if to prove the truth of what Doran had told his nieces about change, rather than waiting for news of Quentin sailing up the green blood with his dragon princess, about a month after her cousins head to King's Landing, Ariane finds herself being sent on a secret mission to Griffin's Roost to meet the newly returned Lord John Connington and the boy he claims is her cousin Aegon. 
In John Connington's final point of view in A Dance with Dragons, he had directed Halden Halfmaster to send a message to Dorne. On several occasions, he had mentioned Dorne as a potential ally, and it's obvious he holds out hope that Doran will seek to support his nephew. Obviously, Connington knows nothing of Doran's long game with Daenerys and Viserys, so even if he did, it's unclear how much it would change his strategy, since he himself had been involved in a long game centered around Targaryens in exile, and had learned from experience that those plans were not likely to be fruitful. Yes, nowadays, John Connington and Aegon's strategy seems to be very much about seizing the initiative, which may not make them ideal partners for Doran Martell, though Ariane Martell may turn out to be another matter entirely. And so the letter requesting Dorne's aid was sent in the days leading up to the Golden Company marching on Storm's End. We talked about this letter from Doran's point of view in our previous episode, but let's review it here. The letter is addressed to Prince Doran of House Martell, and continues, You will remember me, I pray. I knew your sister well, and was a leal servant to your good brother. I grieve for them as you do. I did not die, no more than did your sister's son. To save his life we kept him hidden, but the time for hiding is done. A dragon has returned to Westeros to claim his birthright and seek vengeance for his father and for the Princess Ilia, his mother. In her name, I turn to Dorne. Do not forsake us. It was signed, John Connington, Lord of Griffin's Roost, Hand of the True King. In the letter, John Connington uses the phrase leal servant to describe his relationship with Rhaegar. In his first POV chapter, he had urged Aegon to reward men who give him leal service with trust and generosity. As this was his advice to Aegon specifically about how a prince should act, contrasted in his inner thoughts with the paranoia of King Aerys, it's reasonable to think this is Connington's experience of Rhaegar, a prince who was generous and open-hearted with men once they had earned his trust through service, the kind of prince he has tried to instruct Aegon in becoming. Whether or not he succeeded, of course, remains to be seen. Doran himself seems much less interested in John Connington and his leal service to Rhaegar than he is in the possibility that Elia's son might live. From Arianne's point of view, Doran seems hopeful but unconvinced by the contents of the letter. Even if it is Aegon, the Golden Company is a powerful enough ally, but nowhere near sufficient to take Westeros alone, even in concert with Dorne. In order to be convinced, Doran will need to learn not only the truth of both Connington's and Aegon's identities, but also what other allies they can bring to their cause. He made it abundantly clear in A Feast for Crows that he would never bring Dorne into a war they could not hope to win, and so when Ariane 1 opens in the Winds of Winter, she's departing Dorne, bound for Griffin's Roost with a small party of companions to evaluate the situation for her father. Doran instructs his daughter to be his eyes and ears, to proceed with caution, and to send news of what she learns. But he continues with a caveat. Report only what you know to be true, 
We are lost in fog here, besieged by rumours, falsehoods, and travellers' tales. I dare not act until I know for a certainty what is happening. As for what action he might take based upon her reports, Ariane thinks that war is coming to dawn, but how her father responds to it will depend upon her evaluation of John Connington. It says... In the Boneway and the Prince's Pass, two Dornish hosts had massed, and there they sat sharpening their spears, polishing their armour, dicing, drinking, quarrelling, their numbers dwindling by the day, waiting, waiting, waiting for the Prince of Dawn to loose them on the enemies of House Martell. One word from Ariane, and those armies would march, so long as that word was dragon. If, instead, the word she sent was war, Lord Ironwood and Lord Fowler and their armies would remain in place. The Prince of Dawn was nothing if not subtle. Here, war meant wait. And how she will report must be based upon things her father told her back at Sunspear, not the least of which is... Dorne is the least populous of the Seven Kingdoms. Valor is a poor substitute for numbers. Dorne cannot hope to win a war against the Iron Throne, not alone. For the sake of the people of Dorne and its future, as represented by the children playing in the pools at the water gardens, Doran lives by the maxim, the wise prince will wage no war without good cause, nor any war he cannot hope to win. So Doran will not act alone, if he can help it. And so the fate of Dawn literally hangs upon Ariane's judgment as she heads north with Sir Damon Sand, once Prince Oberyn Squire as her sworn shield, a pair of knights, Joss Hood and Garibald Shells, two ladies-in-waiting, Jane Ladybright and her cousin Elia Sand, and a serving man called Feathers to tend the all-important ravens. As they crossed the sands for Ghost Hill, where they would find a ship to carry them to the Stormlands, Arian talks to Damon Sand about what they left behind and what lies ahead. Sir Damon is the son of Sir Ryan Illyrian, heir to God's grace, who had accompanied Oberyn to King's Landing. Once Arian's youthful lover, he had grown into a promising knight in his mid-twenties, obviously one whom Doran not only felt comfortable in trusting with his daughter's safety, but also with the details of their mission. And so the discussions between the two range from Darkstar, whom Arian thinks of as her most grievous sin, and Damon calls more a viper than your uncle ever was to John Connington, about whom Ariane has many questions. Beginning with Darkstar, Ariane expresses a hope that Obara Sand has put an end to him, though Sir Damon tells her that the reverse is just as likely, and also that her uncle could, quote, see that he was poison. The general tone of her thoughts and the discussion about Darkstar is disgust over what he did to Marcella, although Ariane privately acknowledges that it was her attraction to the man that blinded her to his true nature. As for John Connington, Damon Sand tells her, He's dead. He died in the disputed lands. Of drink, I've heard it said. 
Damon seems more inclined to believe that the Connington who wrote the letter is a relative of the one who served as Ares's hand, or perhaps simply a sellsword who's taken on his name. Ariane isn't so sure, wondering if perhaps he never died at all. The idea of a man pretending to be dead for so many years strikes her as a plot worthy of her father, and it says the thought made Ariane uneasy. Seeking to know more about this man before she meets him, she commands Damon to tell her all he knows of the John Connington from Westeros. While Damon was but a boy when Connington was exiled, he's able to relay what he knows of the man by reputation. Connington was Lord of Griffin's Roost when Griffin's Roost was still a lordship worth the having. Prince Rhaegar's squire, or one of them. Later, Prince Rhaegar's friend and companion. The Mad King named him Hand during Robert's Rebellion, but he was defeated at Stony Sept in the Battle of the Bells, and Robert slipped away. King Ares was wroth and sent Connington into exile. There he died. This is the public knowledge, so seeking more insight, Ariane asks about his personality, what sort of man he was. Damon tells her, proud, for a certainty, even arrogant, a faithful friend to Rhaegar, but prickly with others. Robert was his liege, but I've heard it said that Connington chafed at serving such a lord. Even then, Robert was known to be fond of wine and whores all of which amounted to a profound sense of uneasiness in Ariane. She's well aware that her feminine wiles, what Cersei told Sansa was a woman's other weapon, second only to tears, would be very effective on most men. But Connington was beginning to sound like the sort of man charm would have very little effect upon. Can I match such a man with words alone, becomes her pressing worry. And when the group arrive at Ghost Hill, seat of House Tallant, where they would find that ship to take them across the Sea of Dorne, Arian finds some current information waiting for them, if still mostly rumour. Lady Nymella and her daughters host Arian and tell her of these rumours from the Stormlands. Sellswords landing on Cape Wrath, castles under siege or being taken, crops seized or burned. Where these men come from and who they are, no one is certain. Pirates and adventurers, we heard at first. Then it was supposed to be the Golden Company. Now it's said to be John Connington, the Mad King's Hand, come back from the grave to reclaim his birthright. Whoever it is, Griffin's Roost has fallen to them. Rainhouse, Crow's Nest, Mistwood. Even Greenstone on its island, all taken. Tarth has fallen too, some fisherfolk will tell you. These sellswords now hold most of Cape Wrath and half the Stepstones. We hear talk of elephants in the Rainwood. And so Ariane begins to gather information which she will ultimately send back to her father in Sunspear. 
based on the fact that Coddington's original landing party at Griffin's Roost had no elephants until Aegon arrived, accompanied by a few clearly new arrivals, and the fact that the planned march to Storm's End would take that company north of Griffin's Roost rather than south into the Rainwood. These stories of elephants in the Rainwood south of Griffin's Roost can lead the reader to surmise that more of the Golden Company has arrived on Cape Wrath. Perhaps Mark Mandrake's force from Greenstone or the ship that had landed on the Stepstones. Yeah, the elephants, as quirky as they are, are a sort of obvious bookmark. Knowing where elephants are or are not can be a big help in tracing the covert movements of the Golden Company throughout the region and of estimating their overall strength. Given geography and the noted locations of landings and subdued castles, we can make predictions about the movements of the company based on reported elephant sightings. And by the time Ariane sets out to cross the Sea of Dorne, we can predict that although John Connington had initially landed just over half of the Golden Company on the coast below Griffin's Roost, the rest have now made their way to his side, with the exception of the few small groups that have been left behind to garrison the castles now under their control. At Ghost Hill, she confers with Damon Sand again, this time about the likelihood that the boy with Connington is truly her cousin Aegon. Damon echoes the opinion of others who hear of the reappearance of Aegon Targaryen, from Tyrion Lannister aboard the Shy Maid to his uncle Kevin in King's Landing. Gregor Clegane ripped Aegon out of Elia's arms and smashed his head against a wall. If Lord Connington's prince has a crushed skull, I will believe that Aegon Targaryen has returned from the grave. Elsewise, no. This is some feigned boy, no more, a sellsword's ploy to win support. Arianne reveals that Doran is of the same mind, though it's clear that if the truth could be proven, it would change everything, though not necessarily to the benefit of Doran's plans. We looked for Rhaegar's sister, not his son, she comments, indicating the difficulties Dorian was having in reconciling this opportunity with the unresolved mission of his son to Daenerys in Slaver's Bay. And so, Arianne crosses the water, heading for Cape Wrath, and the uncertainty of what she will find there. On board the ship, she asks Damon more questions, this time about Viserys Targaryen and his sister. She wonders what Viserys was like, an unanswerable question, since no one in Westeros knew him. And at any rate, he is dead now, and so she wonders how that came to pass. Again, Damon Sand cannot answer, but Arianne has an idea, though she doesn't speak it aloud. Perhaps Daenerys realised that once her brother was crowned and wed to me, she would be doomed to spend the rest of her life sleeping in a tent and smelling like a horse. What she does say aloud to Daemon, taken with her unspoken thought, is fairly indicative of the way Danny might be viewed by a lot of people in Westeros, especially once news of Quentin's fate hits the rumour mill. 
The final question she asks her sworn sword in that chapter is more of an unfinished thought. She is the Mad King's daughter. How do we know? And Sir Damon's reply is, we cannot know. We can only hope. Guard your tongues, Ariane warned her company as they disembarked. It would be best if King's Landing never knew we passed this way. Should Lord Connington's rebellion be put down, it would go ill for them if it was known that Doran had sent her to treat with him and his pretender. That was another lesson that her father had taken pains to teach her. Choose your side with care, and only if they have a chance to win. In the second Ariane sample chapter, we see Ariane and her companions arriving at and travelling through the Stormlands. Rumours of the Griffin's men and their activities were rife in the Weeping Town, where they land, and in the surrounding area. In fact, in the Weeping Town, they learn that 50 or so locals, including Sir Adam Whitehead, the son of the local lord, a character named, incidentally, for our fellow fan, blogger and BWB member, Worthead, have gone off to join Lord Connington, seeking adventure or perhaps a chance to see some fame or fortune from the experience. Ariane's first raven to her father flies from the Weeping Town, bearing news of all the rumours she's encountered on both sides of the Sea of Dorne, and the party sets off into the Rainwood. Their first night out, they camp in a cave, and we get more of Ariane's thoughts about her brother Quentin and Daenerys Targaryen, as well as an incident that brings young Elia Sand into sharper focus. In the previous chapter, Elia had been depicted as a 14-year-old wild child who called herself Lady Lance, and had a reputation as a girl jouster. At Ghost Hill, Velena Sand asked her if she was half-horse. Now, Ariane's second chapter finds her off exploring the depths of the cave alone, prompting a frantic search which ends with Ariane reproving her for her foolish and risky behaviour. If the language and characterization puts you in mind of Lyanna Stark, we think that's no accident. And we'll be getting back to what we think might be the significance of Lady Lance to the upcoming plot a little bit later. Now, on that same evening, Ariane found herself thinking about Quentin again. She ponders whether there's been some ruse and wonders if the Targaryen at Griffin's Roost might in fact be Daenerys with Quentin in tow. While Ariane can't imagine why a young queen would be interested in her solemn and dutiful brother, she knows that Dorne would be an important ally and might be worth the price of Quentin. Her final thought, I pray that Daenerys treats him more gently than she did her brother, is based on Ariane's assumption that Daenerys was somehow complicit in Viserys' death and once again does not bode well for the direction public opinion will take when Danny finally does arrive in Westeros. When they reach Mistwood, the seat of House Mertens, they encounter their first members of the Golden Company, two sergeants called Chains and young John Mudd. 
it's clear they've been expected, and the two let it slip that Lord Connington won't be found at Griffin's Roost. Nonetheless, that is their destination, as Halden Halfmaester apparently awaits them there, but first they spend an evening in the company of the Dowager, Lady Mertens, whose sons and grandsons left to fight for Renly and still send the occasional raven, though it's unclear if they are with Stannis or have bent the knee to Tommen, though Stannis perhaps seems more likely. The talk with Lady Mertens turns to the behaviour of the conquering sellswords. Though Lord Connington seems to have forbidden rape and murder, that hasn't stopped them foraging for resources and seducing local women. Lady Mertens tells Arianne, If you should see this Lord Connington, you tell him that I knew his mother and she would be ashamed. This exchange highlights a PR problem John Connington will be faced with as the Golden Company expands its area of conquest. Yeah, obviously Aegon has arrived in Westeros intent on taking what he sees as his birthright. However, the fact that he's backed by 10,000 hungry sellswords equally intent on seizing lands and riches is going to lead to no small amount of friction. Westeros has been at war for going on three years now, beset by a series of quarrelsome lords making their claims to the Iron Throne. In order to distinguish himself from these factions, Aegon would do well to win the hearts and minds of the people, but that's something he cannot do while the sellswords he brought into the country are perceived as raping and pillaging. Arianne seems thoughtful as she hears these words from Lady Mertens, and we wonder if her perspective, given frankly to John Connington, will influence how Aegon's army conducts itself going forward. It would certainly be a logical advice, based on the fact that the sergeants at Mistwood declare that Connington has forbidden certain behaviours, and it seems likely that he'd be receptive to it. Arianne sends her second raven from Mistwood, and they begin their journey through the Rainwood to Griffin's Roost, a trip that will take eight days in all. Accompanied by the Sergeant Chains, Arianne encourages him to talk to her about his life story and experiences in the Golden Company, and eventually he lets it slip that their goal is to take Storm's End. Both Arianne and Damon Sand are puzzled by the how of this statement and wonder why Connington wouldn't instead seek to make common cause with Stannis Baratheon, basically proving that neither of them has ever met Stannis. John Connington undoubtedly has, though Stannis would have been a very young man, we can expect that Connington was well acquainted with the younger brother of his liege lord, who lived within a couple of days' march of his own home. They do eventually arrive at the intent behind what is undoubtedly a bold plan. Ariane points out that capturing a handful of ungarrisoned castles is one thing, but taking what is undeniably one of the greatest strongholds in Westeros is another thing entirely. Sir Damon agrees. The realm would have to take them seriously and some of those who do not love the Lannisters might well come flocking to their banners. 
It was this bit of intelligence that Ariane included in her third message to her father. On the next day, their party was intercepted by Lysona Marr and an escort from Griffin's Roost. Marr, as we know, is the spymaster of the Golden Company, and he introduces himself to Ariane as its eyes and ears. Though Ariane tries to bait him with what she's guessed of Connington's movements from her conversations with John Mudd and Chains, asking if he's off at war or off at Storm's End, Mar refuses an answer and merely says they will be escorted to Griffin's Roost. And so, after another day's travel, Ariane decides to ask Mar openly about the company's intentions. Her pointed questions get to the heart of Dawn's concerns about their principle. When she queries Ma about dragons, he disingenuously tells her that they have one. Aegon himself, of course. Ariane is doubtful and says so, and she also expresses her doubts about the Golden Company itself. When Ma tells her the Golden Company was founded by a dragon... She replies, Bittersteel was half dragon and all bastard. I'm no maester, but I know some history. You're still sellswords. As free brothers go, your company stands well above the rest, I grant you. Yet the Golden Company has been defeated every time it crossed into Westeros. They lost when Bittersteel commanded them. They failed the Blackfire pretenders. They faltered when Meili's the Monstrous led them. Though Mar protests that some of their defeats had been near things, Ariane is having none of it. A defeat is a defeat as she sees it, and she points out the obvious and critical fact that will colour her father's ultimate decision wisely not letting on that Doran has actually left the final decision in her hands. Prince Doran, my father, is a wise man and fights only wars that he can win. If the tide of war turns against your dragon, the Golden Company will no doubt flee across the narrow sea, as it has done before, as Lord Connington himself did after Robert defeated him at the Battle of the Bells. Dorne is no such refuge." Why should we lend our swords and spears to your uncertain cause? Of course, Ma would have it that Aegon is her own blood, her cousin, Doran's nephew. But Daenerys Targaryen is also kin to Dawn, she points out, and she has dragons. And while Arianne is holding back quite a few things on her side, Ma holds back as well, simply pointing out that Daenerys is half a world away and making no mention of John Connington's conviction that Aegon will one day be married to his aunt. Yeah, this is a point that one would hardly expect him to raise, being above his pay grade, so to speak. But it will definitely be interesting to see what happens if and when John Connington mentions it to Arianne. If she continues to withhold the information about Quentin, and Connington seeks to assuage her doubts about Aegon by promising that Daenerys will one day come to Westeros as his wife, we could see quite a few assumptions on both sides of the equation effectively laid bare, and we'll be discussing that more shortly. 
For now, Ariane sends her fourth message to her father after this conversation, which seems to definitively rule out any involvement by Daenerys and Quentin with the Golden Company, and basically ends with Mar pointing out that fire-breathing dragons are great in theory, but perhaps in a battle, elephants, which in this case are real tangible assets, might be just as good. And so the group came to Griffin's Roost, where they were greeted by a dozen or so officers of the Golden Company and Halden Halfmaster. It's Halden who at last openly informs her that they have taken Storm's End, and that Lord Connington, whom he now refers to as the Hand, awaits her there. A ship will take her across Shipbreaker Bay on the next day. Damon Sand protests that this is the least safe route and that he would prefer the overland journey of two or three days. But haste is in order, says Halden, because an army is coming down the King's Road and battle is imminent. Storm's End is ours. The hand awaits you there. There is an army descending on Storm's End from King's Landing. You'll want to be safe inside the walls before the battle. Prince Aegon means to smash his enemies in the field. Once Arianne and Damon are in private, he continues to protest to her that he doesn't trust these men, and that she should avoid Storm's End, that Mace Tyrell's army is sure to be too strong to defeat, and that her father never intended her to go into such danger. After Lysono Mars' intelligence left Quentin's fate still very much up in the air, Sir Damon feels Ariane has learned as much as she could and that the risk of going further far outweighs any potential reward. But Ariane is determined to see it through. She wants to see Aegon and she's nearly certain she wouldn't be given a choice in the matter anyway. She is the heir to Dorn, she reminds Damon, and could in the not-too-distant future, be Dorn. It is her responsibility to gather as much intelligence as she can and to make an informed decision about Dorn's fate, which her father had pointedly told her lay in her hands. And so the last we know of Ariane, she's preparing to depart Griffin's Roost on board a ship bound for Storm's End, now held by John Connington and the Golden Company. Her fifth message to her father undoubtedly told him of this latest development. And coming up, we'll be discussing how Connington managed to take Storm's End, what might happen with Ariane when she arrives there, and who we expect might join with Aegon in the upcoming battle with that army marching down the King's Road. But first, we'll be taking a walk down memory lane to recap the Blackfire Conspiracy Theory for you. That's up next, right after we take a short break to recognise our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Radio Estros is powered by patrons, and we owe our thanks to Aerodo, Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Hortense of Ashai, B-Word, The Queen Beyond the Wall, Blythe Spirit, Kabath the Unfrozen, Christian, Crispy, Sir Archibald Cadogan, Marja the Mage, David, Dean, Dibbles and Bits, Drew, Eliana Targaryen, 
Sir Sorcedelica, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady of the Frostfangs, Lady Silverwing, Infandaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Liam, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, Boss, the Sithorian, Sally, Sammy, Tristis Lorian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, Scotty, Tim, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Direless of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And as we said at the start of the episode, Radio Westeros now has a Discord forum. Every day we hang out there with like-minded listeners and discuss A Song of Ice and Fire, play games, talk about movies, pets, books, food, Dungeons and Dragons, and other fun topics. Consider becoming a patron to get your invitation today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The blue hair makes your eyes seem blue, that's good. And the tale of how you colour it in honour of your dead Tairoshi mother was so touching it almost made me cry. Still, a curious man might wonder why some sellswords whelp would need a soiled scepter to instruct him in the faith, or a chainless maester to tutor him in history and tongues. And a clever man might question why your father would engage a hedge knight to train you in arms instead of simply sending you off to apprentice with one of the free companies. It is almost as if someone wanted to keep you hidden while still preparing you for... What? There's a puzzlement, but I'm sure that in time it will come to me. I must admit, you have noble features... For a dead boy. Following Aegon Targaryen to Westeros, even closer than his guardian John Connington, is a theory written so deeply into phantom lore that many of us now instinctively call the boy Phaegon, short for fake Aegon. We covered the Phaegon theory in great detail in our 25th episode, Writ in Blood, but we're going to boil that down for a shorter section here to provide you with a recap, given that we're talking a lot about Aegon today. 
So the theme of Aegon being in some way fake is already pertinent to the boy's story, even before the fandom aimed its crackpot catapult at him. In A Dance with Dragons, we learn the story of the Pisswater Prince, which purported that baby Aegon Targaryen had been swapped before his apparent death at the hands of Gregor Clegane, and that young Griff is in fact the royal Aegon. But the Blackfire theory supposes a further twist in the plot has yet to be revealed, that he is unknowingly a Blackfire pretender caught up in the scheming of Varys and Illyrio. House Blackfire has been increasingly mentioned in the main series since Storm of Swords, as well as featuring heavily in the World Book and Duncan Egg. A schism in the Targaryen tree was created when Aegon the Unworthy bestowed the symbolic Valyrian steel blade Blackfire upon his bastard son Daemon, and later legitimized Daemon and all of his bastards on his deathbed. From this final act came five rebellions, each failing to varying degrees, as the Blackfire sought power, recognition, and the throne they believed was rightfully theirs. In light of how George likes to bring his world together, be it via Walder Frey, Bloodraven, Maester Aemon, or Dunk Shield, all of which connect Duncan Egg to the main series, perhaps it's not so crazy to wonder if the Blackfires are at the heart of an unfurling conspiracy in A Song of Ice and Fire. Remembering that we saw mysterious game players Varys and Illyrio conspiring together in the very first book, we know that on some level the foundations for this conspiracy are deeply laid. And so the theory, although it does vary from person to person, goes something like this. In A Dance with Dragons, we learn much about the Golden Company, who have apparently been hired by Illyrio to take the Iron Throne for Aegon Targaryen. The plan originally involved Viserys and Daenerys and the Dothraki Horde, but apparently changed as Viserys and Danny's fortunes evolved. However, we mustn't forget the Golden Company's origins. They were founded by none other than Damon Blackfire's brother, Agor Rivers, with the primary objective of seating a Blackfire upon the Iron Throne. Rivers, known as Bittersteel, was another of the so-called Great Bastards legitimized by Aegon the Unworthy, established the company while in exile after defeat at the Redgrass Field in the First Blackfire Rebellion. And so, one cannot think of the Golden Company without bringing House Blackfire to mind. Bittersteel is a part of who they are, and they continue to hoist his gold-covered skull aloft to this day. Their war cry is, beneath the gold, the bitter steel. Aegor Rivers is the bedrock of the entire organisation, a fact which should make us scrutinise the Golden Company in light of this theory. And one remarkable fact about the Golden Company that should not be ignored is that they are said to never break their contracts. In the dog-eat-dog world of Essosi sellsword companies, here we have an organisation that keeps to their word. That is, until they don't.
Yeah, it's Ariane who comments that since the time of Bittersteel, the Golden Company have boasted that our word is as good as gold. But we learn that they have, in fact, broken their contract with Mir as a war with Tyrosh and Lys closed in. When Tyrion asks Illyrio in A Dance with Dragons how he got them to break the contract, it says the Magister waggled his fat fingers and replied, Some contracts are written ink and some in blood. I say no more. So one could wonder, if Illyrio made them a financial offer they couldn't refuse, or if indeed, as the quote suggests, the breaking of the contract was a manoeuvre made on personal, political and ideological grounds. Yeah, it's a very mysterious answer there from Illyrio. What contract, apparently writ in blood, could be so important that the Golden Company would forego their famed reputation as Oath Keepers. The contract with Illyrio was signed by the deceased former leader of the Golden Company, Miles Toyne, a.k.a. Blackheart, whose moniker is surely a hint at his allegiance, especially given the Toynes have some history opposing Targaryens. All of this amounts to an impressive case that there could be a Blackfire sentiment at the heart of Barris and Illyrio's operation, based on circumstantial evidence, possible motives, and historical details. And then we get the revelation that Varys had been adamant about the need for secrecy. The plans that he and Illyrio had made with Blackheart had been known to them alone. The rest of the company had been left ignorant. Now, this could be referring to the young Griff is Aegon layer of the plot, but it could also serve as a hint that there's yet another layer to this onion, that Blackheart knew of the proposed Blackfire conspiracy, and that his successor, Harry Strickland, and indeed most or even all of the Golden Company, have been left unawares. In this scenario, John Connington and even Fagon himself have been left unknowing, perhaps to be revealed at the perfect time and place. Illyrio might even have the blade Blackfire stowed away for that very moment. But for now, he and Varys might be happy that their secret remains well buried, because, as Ario Hota would tell you, someone always tells. Exactly. So the Golden Company, whose lower ranks, and probably captains we think, wouldn't know about any Blackfire plot, are happy to join with Daenerys and Aegon Targaryen as their best hope to finally regain their lost lands in Westeros. Their captains laughed at Viserys when he approached them as the Beggar King, but that was because he was poor and weak, certainly no great ally for a sellsword company. Later, however, they agreed to a plan to join with Viserys when they believed he had the Dothraki by his side, according to Tristan Rivers. The Golden Company as a whole are often viewed as a ragtag bunch who simply want to go home. Perhaps for most of them it may be true that black or red a dragon is still a dragon, and that after all these generations in exile, Blackfire schemes are a forgotten or lost cause. This is understandable given the demise of the Blackfires and these men's desire to return to their homeland in some cases after generations of exile. As such, 
the rank and file of the Golden Company might well be satisfied with following Targaryens who are also in exile, and the old enmities are seen as water under the bridge. And while this could be true, like we've said, of the rank and file of the Golden Company, we must remember that Illyrio's contract was signed by Miles Toyne. It's this man's intentions which ultimately count. The company might be following orders to seat Aegon Targaryen on the throne without realising probable loyalist Blackheart had built this alliance with Blackfire conspirators to begin with, and that at the heart of this contract was Bittersteel's original intentions. So, if Aegon is fake, and indeed is a Blackfire, it makes some sense that he would be veiled as a Targaryen. In desperate need of Westerosi allies, there are surely more houses and lords that would rise for the Red Dragon than the Black. Dorne, for instance, and perhaps many other houses in the Reach and Stormlands. And so a Targaryen ruse would better facilitate the invasion of Westeros and probably increase the chances of a Blackfire victory. And in any grand theory, one would hope to find layers of evidence coming from 50 directions and in various forms. Fortunately for the proposed Blackfire conspiracy, fans perceive an encouraging amount of prophetic and symbolic evidence. In A Clash of Kings, when Daenerys is lost in the House of the Undying and is under the influence of the hallucinogenic Shade of the Evening concoction, she sees all sorts of prophetic visions. And in one of these visions, known as the Slayer of Lies triad, we get this. A cloth dragon swayed on poles amidst a cheering crowd. Danny later refers to this as a mummer's dragon. Given that Varys is a noted mummer, the phrasing of mummer's dragon is interesting to say the least. The fact that the dragon is made of cloth perhaps evokes inauthenticity, as does the fact that the vision is included in the Slayer of Lies triad. It's worth pointing out that this is in Clash, possibly before George thought of introducing the Blackfire story. So we would suggest that it's possible he always intended Aegon to be a fake and could have amended that to him being a Blackfire later on. Either way, Aegon as the Cloth Dragon and one of the lies Danny must slay works and seems to us a reasonable interpretation of that prophecy. Daenerys later notes that mummer's dragons are used in follies to give the hero something to fight, which could be a metatextual hint regarding Aegon's meaning in the story. And the symbolic evidence doesn't end with the mummer's dragon. In the Riverlands, there's an establishment now known as the Inn at the Crossroads, but Septon Meribald informs Brienne and Podrick in A Feast for Crows that it was once called the Clanking Dragon. Here's the passage. A three-headed dragon of black iron hung from a wooden post. The beast was so big it had to be made in a dozen pieces, joined with rope and wire. When the wind blew, it would clank and clatter, so the inn became known far and wide as the Clanking Dragon. 
Is the dragon sign still there? asked Podrick. No, said Septon Maribald. When the smith's son was an old man, a bastard son of the fourth Aegon rose up in rebellion against his true-born brother and took for his sigil a black dragon. These lands belonged to Lord Darry then, and his lordship was fiercely loyal to the king. The sight of the black iron dragon made him wroth, so he cut down the post, hacked the sign into pieces, and cast them into the river. One of the dragon's heads washed up on the quiet isle many years later, though by that time it was red with rust. So fans speculate that this sign could symbolize Aegon's secret Blackfire identity. We have the sign of a three-headed dragon, which was taken for a Blackfire dragon by a Targaryen loyalist who dismantled it and threw it into the river, much like the Blackfires were scattered and fled across the narrow sea. And years later, one of the dragon heads washed up on shore looking like a red dragon, but was still black underneath the veneer of rust, perhaps alluding to Aegon being a Blackfire. This forms a piece of evidence that wouldn't look strong on its own, but looks good in the context of the full case. Yeah, I like that one. And finally, in story, the characters seem to consider the Blackfires done and dusted after the rebellions were all put down. Perhaps many readers do too. However, there is a hint, both subtle and gigantic at the same time, that there is life left yet in the Blackfire line. Whereas the line is concluded by most to be extinct, a window is left open by George. In Dance, Illyrio says this to Tyrion. When Maelys the Monstrous died upon the Stepstones, it was the end of the male line of House Blackfire. So, at first glance, it appears all is lost for the Blackfires, but upon inspection, specifying that the male line is dead, seems to imply that the female line is still alive. So perhaps it's reasonable to conclude that there is life left in House Blackfire, and as we learn from Jurassic Park, life uh, finds a way. And so young Griff, posing as Aegon Targaryen, may well turn out to be the final heartbeat of House Blackfire. In our aforementioned Blackfire episode, number 25, we do go into considerably more detail about the history of the Blackfires, the plotting of Varys and Illyrio, and speculate further about the Blackfire line and how it might be linked to our two co-plotters. So we recommend checking that out if you want more on this intriguing topic. Overall, with evidence from the prophetic to the symbolic to the historic, we believe there's a great case to be made for Aegon being a Blackfire. And so, when the Winds of Winter is finally resting in our palms, be sure to keep a close eye on this plotline for emerging clues and hints to this invasion actually being the sixth Blackfire Rebellion. 
It would be quite a revelation for readers, but imagine the surprise and added drama when invested characters like John Connington and Doran Martell learn that their red dragon is in fact black and that Aegon is the Perkin Warbeck of A Song of Ice and Fire. On a character level, the Blackfire conspiracy might be a vehicle not only designed to create further conflict in the story, but also to set up tragedies and the human heart in conflict with itself binds that we know George loves to toy with. And if there's one thing Westerosi history can tell us about the Blackfires, it's that they keep coming back for more. So we say... Don't be surprised if this is one of the rare fan theories that becomes canon in the upcoming novels. And speaking of the upcoming novels, up next, we'll be getting into our Winds of Winter speculation. What's happening at Storm's End? Who are the friends in the Reach? Will the true identity of Septa Lamour ever be revealed? And what role will John Connington's Grayscale play in the upcoming story? But first... Here's a message from YouTuber and Radio Westeros guest, Joe Magician. Hello, Radio Westorians. I'm Joe Magician, and I have a question for you. When Yoke Boy and Lady Gwyn talk about crackpot tinfoil, do you secretly want to hear more? Can you hear the sweet music of foil and dragons singing into the night? Well, you're in luck. I produce theory videos, regular live streams, and analysis of all things Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire with subtle nuance, creativity, and often fun. I tackle burning questions like, who's responsible for Summerhall? Why did the others attack Waymar Royce in the prologue? How Storm's End will fall in the Winds of Winter? And wait, what happened in that brothel of Podrick? Join me and forge your Valyrian steel link on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Joe Magician, and my podcast, The Wit and Wisdom of Joe Magician. Everything in this world is magic, except to the magician. We did not cross half the world to wait. Our best chance is to strike hard and fast before King's Landing knows who we are. I mean to take Storm's End. A nigh-impregnable stronghold and Stannis Baratheon's last foothold in the south. Once taken, it will give us a secure fastness to which we may retreat at need, and winning it will prove our strength. recap segments, we've highlighted how John Connington telegraphed early on his intent to take Storm's End as a symbol of the strength of his returning Targaryen king. And in the Arianne sample chapters, it's made clear that he succeeded with that plan. So we're going to give some consideration now to how they managed to take one of Westeros's most impregnable castles, which was held by Stannis Baratheon loyalists and under siege by a force of Reachmen under the command of Lord Mathis Rowan. In A Dance with Dragons, at Griffin's Roost, Melo Jane, one of the captains of the Golden Company, asked Connington, If Storm's End is so impregnable, how do you mean to take it? The intriguing response was, by guile. 
This has led to a lot of theorising about the ways, or more precisely, the way in which Davos Seaworth twice gained entrance to the stronghold. Yeah, and a lot of people wonder about that little-known landing built into the cliff beneath Storm's End. Davos Seaworth entered it in 283, late in Robert's Rebellion, with a cargo of salt fish and onions to sustain Stannis Baratheon's garrison during Mace Tyrell's siege, and again, 16 years later, with Melisandre of Ashai and her shadow baby bringing death to Renly's castellan, Sir Courtney Penrose. And while this might seem like the obvious way to sneak into Storm's End, we see two main impediments to it being that simple. The first is simply the likelihood of George using the same trick for a third time in the story, not to mention the fact that the castle is now garrisoned by Stannis' men, who would have good reason to be familiar with that landing as a point of weakness in the castle walls. The second is the nature of the undertaking. Yeah, when Davos ran Lord Redwine's blockade during Robert's Rebellion, he was bringing life-saving supplies to a besieged garrison down to eating rats and shoe leather. The men inside welcomed his arrival. The second time he entered, he had only to bring Melisandre past the magical barrier of the Great Walls above, and then her shadow assassin was able to do the rest. Here's a passage describing the approach and the landing. The seaward side of Storm's End perched upon a pale white cliff, the chalky stone sloping up steeply to half again the height of the massive curtain wall. A mouth yawned in the cliff, and it was that Davos steered for, as he had sixteen years before. The tunnel opened on a cavern under the castle, where the storm lords of old had built their landing. The passage was navigable only during high tide, and was never less than treacherous but his smuggler's skills had not deserted him. Davos threaded their way deftly between the jagged rocks until the cave mouth loomed up before them. He let the waves carry them inside. They crashed around him, slamming the boat this way and that and soaking them to the skin. A half-seen finger of rock came rushing out of the gloom, snarling foam, and Davos barely kept them off it with an oar. Then they were passed, engulfed in darkness, and the water smoothed. The little boat slowed and swirled, the sound of their breathing echoed until it seemed to surround them. Davos had not expected the blackness. The last time, torches had burned all along the tunnel, and the eyes of starving men had peered down through the murder holes in the ceiling. The portcullis was somewhere ahead, he knew. Davos used the oars to slow them, and they drifted against it almost gently. This is as far as we go, unless you have a man inside to lift the gate for us. So, aside from the very challenging nature of the approach, unless you have a man inside is the key takeaway here. Melisandre, of course, needed no such man, but the Golden Company's goal is to take the castle, and for that they surely would need someone inside, and so this begins to look like a less appealing way for them to gain entrance, as Stannis's garrison are unlikely to open this gate without good reason. And so we think that any effort to gain entrance by that way would require a lot more nuance than we've seen in the past. But recall that Connington referenced guile as his chosen method for taking the castle. Yeah, and when we think of guile, we think of trickery. 
something like a Trojan horse or perhaps some other type of subterfuge. So we wonder if we might see a select group of men, perhaps of Stormland's origins, attempt to enter the castle by this way. If the men inside could be convinced that there was a life-saving shipment of supplies being brought in by some allies on the outside, they might be convinced to open the portcullis in that tunnel, which would be all Connington needed to gain access. Right, this would be the Trojan horse analogy, where a gift is offered, and when the men inside open their gate to take it inside, the enemy overwhelms them and brings up their friends waiting in reserve. The other option we see for Guile is another type of subterfuge, wherein the men of the Golden Company convince the men inside that they are on the same side. This could be accomplished in one very obvious way. Yep, it's a well-known fact that Stannis Baratheon has been employing swords in his efforts to secure the Iron Throne for himself. All the way back in A Game of Thrones, we hear that Stannis was hiring swords, and in A Clash of Kings, he's stated to have swords in his army outside King's Landing. This is the sort of thing that won't have escaped the Golden Company's notice, even if they are as yet unaware that as of A Dance with Dragons, Stannis actually has designs on employing them as well. Could Connington seek to leverage Stannis's known need to use sellswords and gain entrance to the castle through the simple ruse of rolling up and identifying themselves at the gate and saying, Stannis sent us? It seems like the desperate men inside, especially if they were handed a forged letter from their king, might welcome the arrival of the Golden Company to join their cause. And in fact, this is also the conclusion reached by our friend Brendan Beefish in his excellent Blood of the Conqueror series, which can be found on the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire website. And while this seems to us like the most probable use of guile by Lord Connington, we do want to point out the composition of the garrison, just to paint a picture of how things might go when the Golden Company does gain access. The Castellan is one Gilbert Faring, a crownlander known to be extremely loyal to Stannis, unlike many of the Stormlanders, most of whom have changed their allegiance at least once. Yeah, and that includes his second in command, Lord Elwood Meadows, who had also been Courtney Penrose's second. But Lord Meadows is also not a native Stormlander, hailing from the Reach and having been brought in by Renly as he assembled his great army in conjunction with Mace Tyrell. According to Stannis, Faring and Meadows command a garrison of 200 loyal men. But we have to wonder how deep the loyalty of those men will be to commanders who are essentially outlanders if they're faced with having to negotiate with the Golden Company, who have seized control of many of the castles on Cape Wrath and in the surrounding area. Which brings us to the only other person named to be among the company, Stannis's kinsman, Sir Lomas Estamont, whose family reside on the island of Estamont, recently seized by a contingent of the Golden Company under the command of Mark Mandrake, who was commanded by John Connington to bring all the highborn hostages to Griffin's Roost. 
And since when Ariane arrives at the roost some weeks later, these hostages are not in evidence, we can conclude that they may have been brought to Storm's End, perhaps to aid in the negotiations there. And it might become a very easy matter to gain the loyalty, or at least the cooperation, of the garrison at Storm's End if a few hostages from their own families were to be paraded before them. And so... We mentioned House Estamont, and we'll get back to their particular significance in a moment, but there are other castles that have been taken, or may have been taken, that could lead to a number of potentially significant hostages being gathered at Storm's End. The wife of Davos Seaworth, recently elevated to Lord of the Rainwood by Stannis, could have been directly in the path of the Golden Company. We don't know exactly where their keep is, but it's on Cape Wrath, which we know is almost entirely in the hands of the invaders. We've also heard Tarth mentioned, and if John Connington sent similar orders to whoever landed there, to those that he sent Mark Mandrake on Estermont, we could soon be meeting Brienne's father, Lord Selwyn, on page. Ditto Lord Julian Swan of Stonehelm, the father of Sir Balon. Could there be some twist that brings Ariane face-to-face with Balon Swan's father at Storm's End? And speaking of Ariane coming face-to-face with people at Storm's End, her dear friend Silva Santagar is likely among the hostages from Estremont, since Silva is our prime pick for who told Doran about Ariane's Queenmaker plot, there could be some reveal finally heading our way through that potential reunion. All in all, we find it very likely that Lord Coddington was able to take Storm's End in a relatively bloodless fashion, and that the Golden Company is assembling there, minus the garrisons they've left at other castles they've taken possession of, at very nearly its full strength when Ariane arrives. With Pax de Redwine heading to the Arbor and Cersei's royal fleet in the hands of Orain Waters in the Stepstones, who it may even amuse to lend some support to Aegon's cause. There will be no one to prevent them gathering from the seaward side of the great fortress, while the besieging army under Mathis Rowan is noted to be very small, perhaps no more than a thousand men. But at the end of the second Ariane chapter... Halden Halfmaster indicates to the Dornish princess that there is an army descending on Storm's End from King's Landing. That the battle is imminent and that Ariane will be there as a witness is made plain when Halden adds, you'll want to be safe inside the walls before the battle. And this has shades of Renly informing Catelyn Stark, an emissary from an independent leader, that she would witness his battle with Stannis whether she liked it or not. And it may be no accident either, since that battle was also set to take place in the shadow of Storm's End. And so we can expect to see a battle outside the walls of Storm's End in the Winds of Winter, with Ariane Martell as a witness and John Connington on the field as a participant. This will be one of three battles to be shown from multiple viewpoints that George will open the novel with, and the Battle of Storm promises to be a viewpoint on Storm's End and the surrounding area that has yet to be seen in the novels. 
And we're going to leave discussion of the actual battle to an upcoming live stream because we now want to turn our attention to something that might happen in the aftermath of the Battle of Storm, as Arianne and Aegon Targaryen finally have a chance to get to know each other and discuss the future of the proposed alliance between Aegon and Dorne. I was seven when Elia died. They say I held her daughter Rhaenys once, when I was too young to remember. Aegon will be a stranger to me, whether true or false. We looked for Rhaegar's sister, not his son. There's a lot of discussion in the fandom that Ariane Martell will ultimately form a marriage alliance with Aegon. But the mechanics of such an alliance are anything but simple. For starters, as far as Ariane knows, her brother is in Slaver's Bay seeking his own marriage alliance with Daenerys Targaryen. When Halden Halfmaester suggested this very alliance to him in A Dance with Dragons, that Aegon must be reserved for Daenerys. On the other hand, we see Arianne having the following thoughts about Quentin and Daenerys. This new Daenerys Targaryen was younger than Arianne by half a dozen years. What would a maid that age want with her dull, bookish brother? Young girls dreamed of dashing knights with wicked smiles, not solemn boys who always did their duty. Many of Ariane's thoughts about Daenerys seem to be coloured by her own worldview, including when she wonders if Danny allowed Viserys to be killed by Khal Drogo because of her own ambition, thinking that perhaps she knew of the marriage agreement with Dawn and didn't want to be sidelined and so saw the need to get rid of her brother. This leads to some of Ariane's feelings of guilt about her brother Quentin, as we've said, and of course sets alarm bells ringing for us readers who know of Quentin's fate. But Arianne applying her own unique lens to these situations is a fascinating dynamic when you consider the train of thought about Quentin and Daenerys. Young girls dreamed of dashing knights with wicked smiles. While this will turn out to be true about Danny. It's also demonstrably true of Arianne, considering her own past attraction to the bad boy, Gerald Dane, and her somewhat risque thoughts about her own uncle, classic bad boy, Oberyn Martell. The boy young Griff may have been happy to do his foster father's bidding in everything, but after his arrival at Griffin's Roost, Connington thinks... Prince Aegon Targaryen was not near as biddable as the boy young Griff had been. And in fact, Aegon immediately asserts himself as the commander of the planned attack on Storm's End. So it's a pretty good guess that Aegon is shaping up to be more bad boy than dutiful son and certainly more fire than mud. Arianne, with her weakness for this type, might find herself attracted to her supposed cousin, but what would make her abandon the caution her father urged upon her and make a hasty marriage alliance with this new arrival to Westeros? 
we have hints that this might be where things are going in the general facts that her own caution is a relatively newfound thing and that she demonstrably desires a war with the Iron Throne. In addition, there is that marriage alliance between Quentin and Daenerys. While Quentin was almost certainly alive when Ariane set out from Sunspear, by the time she arrives at Storm's End, he was likely breathing his last in the Great Pyramid of Marine. And so, news of his death, and for that matter, of Daenerys' disappearance, is still some time away. As far as Arianne knows, her father's plan for vengeance and her brother's future still rest upon the success of Quentin's mission, and that she thinks it will be a success, in spite of Danny's likely reservations about poor boring Quentin, is made obvious when she thinks she will want Dawn though. If she hopes to sit the Iron Throne, she must have Sunspear. If Quentin was the price for that, this Dragon Queen would pay it. So, we alluded to this earlier. What happens when Arianne hears from John Connington that it's his intention to see Aegon married to Daenerys? Might she make an impulsive decision to seduce Aegon into a marriage in order to preserve Dorne's hopes for Quentin and Daenerys? It's easy to imagine Arianne, who has introduced us in the act of literally suborning a knight of the Kingsguard, not only away from his duty, but from the sacred vows of his order, turning her charms on Aegon. That she's considered using this tactic on John Connington is made clear following Damon Sand's summary of the man's character. Sir Eris Oakhart had broken his vows for her, but it did not sound as if John Connington could be similarly swayed. Can I match such a man with words alone? Surely she wouldn't hesitate to use those charms on the younger and more likely to be receptive Aegon. As for Aegon, he is less biddable than he once was and is obviously willing and able to assert his will over that of his hand. He's also had his idealized view of Daenerys and their future together, poisoned by Tyrion Lannister, who told him this. I know that Daenerys spent her childhood in exile, impoverished, living on dreams and schemes, running from one city to the next, always fearful, never safe, friendless but for a brother who was by all accounts half mad, a brother who sold her maidenhood to the Dothraki for the promise of an army. I know that somewhere out upon the grass, her dragons hatched, and so did she. I know she is proud. How not? What else was left her but pride? I know she is strong. How not? The Dothraki despise weakness. If Daenerys had been weak, she would have perished with Viserys. I know she is fierce. Astapor, Yunkai, and Marine are proof enough of that. She has crossed the grasslands and the red waste, survived assassins and conspiracies and fell sorceries, grieved for a brother and a husband and a son, trod the cities of the slavers to dust beneath her dainty sandaled feet. How do you suppose this queen will react when you turn up with your begging bowl in hand and say, Good morrow to you, auntie. I am your nephew Aegon, returned from the dead. I've been hiding on a pole boat all my life, but now I've washed the blue dye from my hair, and I'd like a dragon, please. And oh, did I mention my claim to the Iron Throne is stronger than your own? 
Yeah, it was clear in that meeting with the Golden Company outside of Volon Theris that Aegon would far rather be his own man than ride his aunt's coattails. And what better way to do that than by forging his own marriage alliance, thumbing his nose at the carefully laid destiny he has been brought up to fulfil and asserting his own stronger claim to the throne. Now you might see a potential issue with the motivations behind Arianne's and Aegon's reasoning in this scenario being somewhat at odds with one another. But with two impulsive young adults making decisions, both of whom have been advised by cautious and patient men, but who seem inclined to make their own marks and seize control of the power both will view as rightfully theirs, it's not hard to see this alliance actually happening. However, there's a potential wild card in play. Ariane is accompanied by her cousin, Eliasand, aka Lady Lance. We mentioned earlier several parallels this young lady has with none other than Lyanna Stark, and now we want to focus on that again. You might have wondered, as we did, what would be the narrative purpose of including this troublesome child in Ariane's party on its secret and very serious mission to the Stormlands? And now, here's a possible answer to that question. You see, Aegon and Arianne are a very clear mirror to Rhaegar and Ilya, both in their looks, he a classic silver-haired Targaryen, and she dark and very Dornish, and in their political allegiances. The union of Dorne and the Iron Throne is something that's happened only rarely in Westerosi history, and Arianne might feel that this is the right moment to make good on that parallel and let history repeat itself. But what if history repeats itself just a little too much? The presence of Elias Sand with her strong vibes of Lyanna Stark could create a new triangle that mirrors R plus L plus E. Where this might go is anyone's guess, but it could be a wrench in Ariane's plans, to say the least. And speaking of wrenches... What about the very focused and cautious John Connington? Would such an alliance have to be made without his consent and in secret, or could he be persuaded to accept it as a matter of expediency? And speaking of Connington, could we expect Arianne to be completely above board with him and tell Lord Connington and Aegon what she knows about Daenerys and about Quentin's mission to her? As much as we're suggesting she could act impulsively in this matter, we think she's still the daughter of Doran Martell, and that this level of honesty is unlikely. This secret about Quentin, perhaps combined with something to do with Elia Sand, are things that could ultimately be the undoing of the Dornish alliance with Aegon. Yeah, because whether a marriage alliance between Ariane and Aegon is merely planned, or whether it is carried out and perhaps only admitted to once it is fait accompli, is not something we think will be successful in the long run. Unfortunately, it seems like Doran's agents have consistently run his plots off the rails by doing unexpected things, and in spite of his heartfelt pep talk at Sunspear in A Dance with Dragons' The Watcher, we don't necessarily think the Winds of Winter 
will bring much change to that theme. But the winds of winter may bring some short-term success for both Doran and Aegon, and possibly even this potential marriage. In fact, we fully expect that Aegon's ascendancy will last as long as Westeros remains a mere dream of the future for Daenerys. And so, up next, we'll give some consideration to the slate of allies that might join Aegon as his campaign for dominance in Westeros gains strength. Even after a century, some of us still have friends in the Reach. The power of Highgarden may not be what Mace Tyrell imagines. As we've been discussing during this episode, so-called Aegon Targaryen finds himself at Storm's End in the Winds of Winter, ready to face off against Mace Tyrell's army. But in order for Aegon and company to make successful inroads into Westeros, he's going to need all the help he can get. The 10,000 men of the Golden Company, even if they're well-drilled men, might seem a lot, but they'll soon be spread very thin and become exhausted as they move across the Stormlands. The need for support is obvious as Aegon gears up for either a tilt at King's Landing and the Iron Throne, or a potential bloody showdown with Daenerys that's being touted as the Dance of the Dragons 2.0 by the fandom, or perhaps even both in succession. By the time either of those things happen, we expect to see Aegon fighting alongside Westerosi allies, and so the big question is who will rise up with these invaders? As a force, they have the disadvantage of attacking from a foreign land, so John Connington will be hoping for some war weariness in his opposition after the War of the Five Kings, some respect for a supposed Targaryen figurehead in order to attract new allies, and some loyalty from allies of days gone by to make this operation a success. All three of these things together could see support for a Targaryen invasion growing until they are truly a force to be reckoned with. And the point about Aegon reawakening old alliances with loyalists is an interesting one. There could be allies in waiting of either House Targaryen or House Blackfire, remembering that the Golden Company were originally Blackfire exiles. John Connington has mentioned his own friends in the Stormlands, but we want to talk about Aegon's Friends in the Reach, which is a subject that's really piqued the interest of many readers. In A Dance with Dragons, Laswell Peak of the Golden Company says, Even after a century, some of us still have friends in the Reach. The power of Highgarden may not be what Mace Tyrell imagines. So Laswell talks of friends in the Reach, and readers wonder about these being fairly major houses of Westeros, but we think the key is the reference to a hundred years ago, which is when the Blackfire rebellions were first occurring. Here Peak is probably referring to old friends of the Golden Company, those who fought for the Blackfire cause. Houses such as Caswell, Costain, Peak. Verwell, and others. Yeah, these are houses mentioned in the tales of Duncan Egg, where we witness the second Blackfire Rebellion being stamped out by Bloodraven, but most are barely mentioned in the main A Song of Ice and Fire series at all. 
In all reality, they are unlikely to field or contribute strong forces, but perhaps could provide some tactical advantage, given that they're on home soil, they know the lay of the land, and so on. So while they might help to get some men at least over to the Golden Company, and John Connington will no doubt be hoping for some kind of domino effect in the area, we think that despite Peake's thoughts about their friends in the Reach, the real game-changer will likely be new friends Aegon will make going forward. And first up might be Mathis Rowan and his contingent surrounding Storm's End. With Stannis's men, his ostensible target, now defeated at Storm's End, Rowan may be at a loss regarding what exactly he should be doing. Being removed from his direct commander, and with no small amount of chaos breaking out in King's Landing, with two queens on trial, and ultimately the regent and Grand Maester murdered, there might be an opportunity for John Connington to negotiate with the man. Again, our friend Brynden Beefish has actually written about this in his Blood of the Conqueror series, and he points out that Mathis was visibly disgusted when Tywin brought up the killing of baby Aegon, and that he also fought for the Targaryens during Robert's Rebellion. So what's Mathis Rowan going to think when he sees Targaryen banners proudly rippling in the wind over Storm's End and hears that the baby prince he sympathized with is actually alive, having been raised to retake the throne? With Mace Tyrell away in King's Landing, might he be tempted to switch sides? There are certainly those who will switch, and so we judge Mathis Rowan to be a very interesting candidate— With just around a thousand men, it's not exactly earth-shattering numbers, but as we said, Aegon needs to gain some friends quickly, and befriending Mathis Rowan would be a tactical advantage and could even herald the early stages of the aforementioned domino effect. And if the dominoes do begin to fall, there could be another candidate for an alliance whose disgruntlement with the current regime might also be grounded in the events of Robert's Rebellion the potential defection of one Randall Tarly, who, with his force of fifteen to 20,000 men, would be a bigger catch than Mathis Rowan, would send shockwaves throughout southern Westeros. First of all, Randall might have points of contention with Mace Tyrell that have thus far remained only subtly alluded to. At the Battle of Ashford, Randall was the victor over Robert's Baratheon, and so it must have grated on Tarly that ultimately Mace seems to have taken the lion's share of the credit. Skip forward to the recent timeline and recall that Mace was awarded Brightwater Keep for his son Garlan following the Battle of the Blackwater. Randall's wife, Melissa, as the eldest daughter of the attainted Alistair Florent, may have expected to be granted the castle and seat of House Florent, leading to further friction between Tarly and his liege. Small details though they may seem, to proud Randall Tarly, they might mean the earth. And so beneath the surface, the relationship between Tarly and Tyrell might be simmering with these tensions ready to boil over. These are excellent observations by the fandom and again Brynden B. Fish in his essay Friends in the Reach. 
So Randall's pride might have been pricked at the very least, and there's every reason to believe he could be wholly dissatisfied with being overshadowed by Lord Pufffish, especially if positions of great power in a reinstated Targaryen dynasty are offered in overtures by John Connington. Remember that Tarly himself fought for the Targaryens during the rebellion, and so he no doubt harbors some manner of sympathies versus the regime that granted him a, quote, lesser tract of land for his recent accomplishments. There are even those theorists among us who wonder if he's already been turned by the time of the Kevin epilogue in A Dance with Dragons. He is, after all, notably dismissive about the threat Aegon poses with his invasion. If nothing else, If he's not further rewarded for his service by Mace in the reshuffling that's sure to occur in King's Landing after the death of the regent, we could see further disgruntlement on his part. Ultimately, the turning of Randall Tarly to Aegon's side would be a massive coup for the would-be conquerors. In contrast to Mace Tyrell, Randall is noted to be a highly skilled military commander and tactician, a hard and feared presence on any battlefield, and has a large host at his disposal that would otherwise be fighting for the Tyrell cause. As we know, he's not such a great father, and we have every sympathy with his discarded son, Samwell. Now that Sam is in the reach, there's a possibility he may intersect with his father. A Targaryen twist in Randall's story could add more colour to Randall's character and more intrigue to those scenes. If this proposed defection occurs in the Winds of Winter, it would shock the Tyrell camp and potentially turn the tide Aegon's way. So we shall wait with bated breath to see if Randall Tarly turns his cloak and becomes a formidable part of Aegon's army. But as we know, he's not the biggest ally in waiting. As we've discussed, it seems that Arianne Martell might be about to ally Dorne with Aegon, possibly even by way of a marriage. And however that alliance might come about, what a huge manoeuvre it would be for both parties the Dornish troops were withheld from the bloodshed of the War of the Five Kings and so won't be afflicted by the war-weariness shown so poignantly in other parts of Westeros throughout the pages of A Feast for Crows. In fact, it's pretty clearly telegraphed that following the death of Oberyn Martell, most of the Dornish army is more or less spoiling for a fight with the Iron Throne. Yeah, Dorne is seemingly out for fire and blood as a culture and might be extra motivated if they're convinced Aegon is Elia Martell's son. If Aegon and company could sway both Randall Tarly and Dorne, they would be a serious contender to take the Iron Throne from Cersei outright. Whether Daenerys Targaryen swoops in and becomes a rather difficult obstacle to that ambition is another story, but equally such a confrontation could occur after Aegon takes the hot seat. Regardless, Aegon's story and wins is poised to be full of twists, turns, and delicious surprises for the reader, aided by the fact that his character was omitted from the HBO show completely and Aegon's Westerosi journey in the upcoming novel will no doubt begin with pacts, allies, and friends in the Reach.
Who is she really? Why is she here? Not for gold, I judge. What is this prince to her? Was she ever a true scepter? We're going to conclude the episode now by talking briefly about a character mystery and a plot point that might have some bearing on things in The Winds of Winter. We'll start with the character mystery, which surrounds an intriguing character associated with the Aegon plotline that we look forward to seeing a lot more of in The Winds of Winter, Septa Lamore. It's well documented that A Song of Ice and Fire fans love a good mystery, even more so if it's an identity mystery, and the case of Septa Lamore has the fandom scratching our collective heads and launching crackpot theories at every turn in A Dance with Dragons. So now let's zoom in on her. So Septa Lamore is first seen in some of the Tyrion Lannister pages of Dance, a member of the party aboard the Shy Maid. As a scepter, her role is ostensibly to instruct and inform young Griff on the faith of the Seven, part of the plan to raise him to be the ideal leader for Westeros. She is outgoing and affable, and Tyrion certainly enjoys watching her, although doing so raises these questions regarding her true identity. There sure seems to be more to Lamore than meets the eye, and with both the Pisswater Prince baby swap story and the aforementioned Varys and Illyrio possible Blackfire conspiracy in mind, we can wonder what her probable alt identity is and where it fits into the greater scheme of things. As we see in the case of Griff, the inquisitive Tyrion has a sharp mind for figuring out the identities, plans, and motives of others. As a character, Lamore provides a counterpoint to the unending tensions between Griff and Tyrion. The fact that she's a Septa is surely an indication that she has Westerosi origins. She's called handsome and, as we said, is friendly and at times flirtatious. Tyrion thinks she must be past 40, more handsome than pretty, but still easy on the eyes. The identity mystery really begins when Tyrion, watching her bathe in the river, notices stretch marks from childbirth on her belly and concludes that she's not as innocent as she appears. Remembering that Tyrion himself is at this point masquerading as Hugor Hill, he thinks that, like everyone else aboard the Shy Maid, she had her secrets. But it's as the party reaches Seloris that we get the following passage to really get our conspiracy juices flowing. Tyrion watched her closely. He had sniffed out the truth beneath the dyed blue hair of Griff and young Griff easily enough, and Yandri and Isilla seemed to be no more than they claimed to be, whilst Duck was somewhat less. Lamore, though, who is she really? Why is she here? Not for gold, I'd judge. What is this prince to her? Was she ever a true Septa? Halden took note of her change of garb as well. What are we to make of this sudden loss of faith? I preferred you in Septa's robes, Lamore. I preferred her naked, said Tyrion. Lamore gave him a reproachful look. That is because you have a wicked soul. Septa's robes scream of Westeros and might draw unwelcome eyes onto us. She turned back to Prince Aegon. You are not the only one who must needs hide. 
So with these not-so-subtle hints, George is laying the gauntlet in encouraging us readers to imagine who Settler Moore might be. It's an intriguing mystery that might be answered in the pages of The Winds of Winter as Aegon's invasion settles around the east coast of the Stormlands and begins to make inroads. One other notable piece of the puzzle is that Lamore is sometimes called Lady Lamore in universe, causing some readers to assert that she is therefore likely a highborn woman. So could Lady Lamore be yet another Westerosi character exiled in Essos for whatever reason, and this is all a great fit with the purported Blackfire conspiracy, not to mention the secret identity of John Connington. Well, fans have racked their brains since A Dance with Dragons was released to unravel this mystery, yet none of the candidates fit exactly as one would want them to. First off, there's Ashara Dane, the go-to character for a female identity mystery. When she's not Jojen and Mira's mother in the neck, or Quaith in the desert around Karth, Ashara Dane is Septa Lamor, crossing the narrow sea with Aegon and John Connington for an adventure in Westeros. Ashara might be in the correct age range, and is said to have given birth, but unfortunately for this theory, one of Ashara's striking features, her haunting violet eyes, are not mentioned by Tyrion at all. Although we do see the story by limited point of view, we don't think it would be entirely fair of George to have Tyrion ogle Lamor and conveniently fail to remark upon or theorize about those rare and wonderful purple eyes. However, it strikes us that George could be laying the groundwork for a slow reveal there. In A Dance with Dragons... Barristan is remembering Lady Ashara, and we get this. Even after all these years, Sir Barristan could still recall Ashara's smile, the sound of her laughter. He had only to close his eyes to see her, with her long dark hair tumbling about her shoulders and those haunting purple eyes. Daenerys has the same eyes. Sometimes, when the Queen looked at him, he felt as if he were looking at Ashara's daughter. With Tyrion having so recently been impressed by and curious about Lamor and set to meet Daenerys for the first time in the Winds of Winter, we wonder if their first meeting might involve Tyrion wondering about why Danny's eyes seem to remind him of someone he knows. If this happens, we'd say it's much more likely that the Ashara equals Lamor theory is true, since it would be exactly within George's style of reveal to share this sneaky information from two different viewpoints, very similar to how he compared John and Arya's looks and Arya and Lyanna's looks in order to give us the idea that John looks like Lyanna. Furthermore, this could explain why he deliberately chose not to mention Lamor's eyes in A Dance with Dragons while making Barristan have that peculiar thought about Danny and Ashara. And while at first glance, Ashara's background as a Dane also doesn't really fit with her being Aegon's spiritual tutor preparing to invade Westeros, we do have the case of John Connington, a former friend of Aegon's alleged father, who's most likely been enlisted in the plot to lend credibility to the boy. Ashara, former lady-in-waiting and friend of Princess Elia Martell, Aegon's supposed mother, might just be the female counterpart to that element of the plot. 
But perhaps the thing that speaks most against Ashara being L'Amour is the repeated connection that's drawn between her and House Stark. If she turns out to be allied with Aegon, we might have to let that go by the wayside and be left wondering why George spent so much effort to paint her in that light in the first place. And so we think this one is far from conclusive, and it's well worth considering other candidates. And so, next there's Lady Malario, Doran Martel's absent Norvoshi wife. An absent wife sounds like the perfect answer to this mystery, and the term lady is something that, as we said, is applied to L'Amour. Could this be part of a 4D chess game Doran is playing? Unfortunately, besides not making a great deal of story sense, given Tristane Martel's age, it seems almost certain that Melario was still by Doran's side when L'Amour was with young Aegon. So let's call the conclusion of this theory Death by Timeline. Another candidate put forth by fans is that Lamor is the mother of Tyene Sand. After all, we know this woman was a Septa, and so is Lamor, and Tyene is about five years older than Aegon, so the timeline fits. In fact, it's actually difficult to find a fatal flaw in this theory, but perhaps that's because we simply don't know enough about Tyene's mother to bring about any scrutiny. What the theory mainly lacks is story sense. Again, and like some other candidates, there's just not a lot of logic to Tyene's mother being camped out in Essos and joining a conspiratorial invasion. There's simply no connections to be made that join those dots. And one theory that has a better story logic behind it is the idea that Lamour is Sarah. She was Illyrio's wife, which would make sense as to why she's part of this unfolding plot. This whole notion really revolves around Illyrio and Lamor being Aegon's parents as part of the supposed Blackfire conspiracy. It's a neat idea in some ways, such as explaining why Lamor would be around Aegon, instructing him. But it would also mean everything Illyrio told us about Sarah is fabricated. There's differences between the picture Tyrion saw and the description of L'Amour, although defenders of the theory believe that hair dye could resolve any discrepancies. However, if L'Amour were Sarah, wouldn't Tyrion have figured it out pretty quickly? We'll leave this one open as an intriguing possibility. Finally, we'll throw a curveball that might just have some merit. Our friend Grain, who was our guest way back in our RLJ episode, came up with a neat theory about Wenda the White Fawn. Wenda, if you remember, was a member of the Kingswood Brotherhood. She was a notorious outlaw who branded her mark on the pale backsides of her highborn captives, to which the unfortunate Merit Frey could attest. Wenda, as far as we know, was never caught, and who she really was and where she is now remains a mystery. Okay, and so the theory makes note that Wenda was part of the Kingswood Brotherhood, who were led by Simon Toyne. If Wenda was Septilamore, she might have fled Westeros after the demise of the Brotherhood in 281, and sought out Simon Toyne's kinsman, Miles Toyne, who was the leader of the Golden Company, and thus entered Illyrio's employ. 
Besides fitting the timeline, the great thing about this theory is that it actually connects dots in an unexpected way. And one more thing that may point in this direction is that in Barristan Selmy's entry in the White Book, we learned that he, quote, rescued Lady Jane Swan and her septa from the Kingswood Brotherhood, defeating Simon Toyne and the Smiling Knight and slaying the former. And we wonder, could that scepter have been Wenda the White Fawn in disguise? Could she have then fled and become Lamor? The association of scepters and Wenda with the colour white might be a hint there. Alternatively, the White Fawn in Wenda's name could refer to her house of origin, in which case we'd look to House Catherine, a Stormland's house whose sigil is two white fawns, and which could well have had connections with House Toyne, and with their near neighbours House Swan for that matter. And of course, a noble origin could explain why John Connington refers to her as Lady Lamore in his A Dance with Dragons POV chapters. House Kefaren, of which we have yet to meet any members, might well come into play in the Winds of Winter as Aegon and company begin to make inroads into the Stormlands, so there's a decent connection to be made there. Ultimately, the true identity of Septilamore is intriguing and is another reason to be excited for new material. It's difficult to impossible to make a firm call on this one. There's a distinct lack of evidence at this point in time, and we have the feeling George might be withholding the juicy clues for closer to a potential reveal, so keep an eye out for them. Mysteries which don't have an obvious answer serve to draw us further in, and if we haven't wrapped the solution up in a bow, we hope at least we've provided you with the resources to draw some conclusions of your own today. Let's hope that when Lamore's identity is revealed, whether she's someone we've mentioned or someone else we haven't considered, that her backstory is both interesting and pertinent to the plotting she's a part of in order to make that reveal wholly satisfying. Death, he knew, but slow. I still have time. A year, two years, five. Some stone men live for ten. Time enough to cross the sea, to see Griffin's roost again, to end the usurper's line for good and all, and put Rhaegar's son upon the Iron Throne. As an accomplished world builder, George R. R. Martin had to consider every aspect of his A Song of Ice and Fire world in order to achieve the level of realism and verisimilitude required to make this series stand alongside fantasy classics like the works of his idol, J.R.R. Tolkien. In real history, from the Antonine Plague to the Black Death, right up to today's quarantine world, We as a species have been greatly affected by outbreaks of horrible diseases and plagues. George followed suit by including similar afflictions in his world, and so we have the Great Spring Sickness and the Bloody Flux greatly affecting the pre-story and the main plot, along with several other lesser-considered ailments gaining rare mentions here and there. 
but the disease most A Song of Ice and Fire fans are familiar with, given our favourite princess and one of our POVs are afflicted with it, is Grayscale. In fantasy world building, one must blend the real with the fantastical, and so Grayscale and its more swiftly moving cousin, the Grey Plague, mimic real world plagues in their spread and transition, yet is more imaginative in its manifestation. We first hear of it in the Clash of Kings prologue, where the young innocent Shireen Baratheon displays her Grayscale scars on page. Maester Cresson thinks of it like this. Across half one cheek and well down her neck, her flesh was stiff and dead, this skin cracked and flaking, mottled black and grey and stony to the touch. So, in the eerie environment of Dragonstone, surrounded by the terrifying stone gargoyles that adorn the walls, we learn that in the cradle, Shireen Baratheon was afflicted by a disease which turns one's flesh to stone. Maester Cresson was able to save her life, but was unable to cure the scars which mar her face. Any type of disfigurement in storytelling can be a vehicle to our sympathy and heart, and it certainly works here as George intended. Grayscale often affects the young, although not exclusively, and we learn Shireen's affliction now remains as a dormant scarification. Adult victims, though, might not be so lucky. In A Dance with Dragons, John Connington leads the charge to seat Aegon Targaryen on the Iron Throne. His motives revolve around his conviction that Aegon is authentic and that he himself failed House Targaryen in Robert's Rebellion. Regret, redemption and perhaps love drives Connington and when he contracts Grayscale by rescuing Tyrion from Stonemen under the Bridge of Dream, he knows his days are numbered. Stonemen, those Grayscale-afflicted outcasts who live in the A Song of Ice and Fire equivalent of a leper colony at the ruinous city of Croyane, slowly turn completely to stone, and when John Connington pulls Tyrion from the polluted waters around Croyane, the disease is transmitted to him. This puts Connington in a dilemma. He wants to oversee the Westerosi invasion and achieve his goals and, as he sees it, his redemption, but by leading men in his condition, he could be endangering them. He ultimately decides to keep the grayscale and his pending mortality an absolute secret, and so hides his hand and douses it with bad wine to slow the spread of the disease up his arm, knowing if he asks for vinegar, his condition might be discovered. So Connington goes all in with the deception, and such a secret is a difficult burden to bear, which adds tension to his arc and begins to give us the feeling we're racing against time with this character and his goals. Fans also wonder if or when this mendacity will cause other characters around him to become infected. Some theorising even takes this notion to the extreme, speculating that Connington could be the grayscale patient zero who begins an epidemic of the swiftly moving grey plague in Westeros due to his irresponsible deception. Yeah, we're entering the sixth book out of seven. Groundwork is being laid for drama and chaos to come. So 
What if John Connington infects the Golden Company and they infect their foes on the battlefield and it reaches the small folk and high lords alike and so forth? This scenario might be the fourth horseman of the Westerosi apocalypse, given we've already seen or are continuing to see death, war, and famine. It could contribute to chaos and suffering, and that could make humanity even more vulnerable as the others invade from the north. However, some fans disagree that Connington's grayscale will make such an impact. Two books combined to 3,000 manuscript pages might seem a lot, but there's lots of story to get through, so perhaps there simply isn't enough time and page space to weave the disease through Westeros, potentially derailing plot lines that have been delicately crafted by the author. There is, of course, room for a middle ground scenario where Connington infects some of the notable Golden Company troops and causes a panic in the camp enough to detrimentally affect the outcome in which he's so emotionally invested. Altogether, since it's been clearly set up that John Connington has brought his grayscale to Westeros, it'll be intriguing to follow what occurs as a result of his deception. Yeah, George rarely writes without meaning, so whether or not there's a wide outbreak, Connington's grayscale will still carry some significance to the story. Like we said, it creates a sense of urgency that increases the drama in the plot, which conveys just how invested Connington is in seating Rhaegar's son on the Iron Throne, and it also adds a sense of danger as we wonder about the disease's transmission. So there are a plethora of metatextual, world-building, storytelling, and character-driven reasons for George to include Grayscale in his world and, specific to today's discussion, John Connington's plot. The question is, how far will the author take it? We can look forward to the dramatic moment when other characters find out about the infection. Who will be the first to know? Halden Halfmaester is the likely candidate, although the two men are currently separated. And what happens when this news gets out? How will it affect the Golden Company and Aegon's plans? Connington thinks men who would cheerfully face battle and risk death to rescue a companion would abandon that same companion in a heartbeat if he were known to have grayscale. Since small details can have a butterfly effect in this story, could his brief encounter with the Stone Men be the foundation of Aegon's ruin? And what about Connington himself? He accepts this as a death sentence, but just wants to achieve his grand character goal before it's too late. Time is a strange thing for Connington. He waited and waited for this moment to arrive, and now the sands are slipping away very quickly. All of these questions we've ruminated on in this segment are set to be answered through Winds and A Dream of Spring, and we think that whatever happens, Grayscale will leave its indelible mark on Connington, driving his arc until the end. What damage will he do, and how much can he achieve, are the ultimate talking points in his remaining story before his impending doom. Earlier we said that in the case of Shireen, her encounter with Grayscale created sympathy on the part of the reader. When all is said and done, it will be interesting to see if it does the same thing 
with John Connington. Thanks so much for joining us for this installment of our Winds of Winter Primer. We'll be back soon with another regular episode. And don't forget to catch our upcoming live streams, where we'll discuss a lot more about the characters in this episode with guests. And speaking of guests, thanks so much to Joe Magician for the ad we used in this episode. If you haven't done so, check out his YouTube channel and give him a like and a subscribe. And now, as always, it's time to pay credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. Martin for including Aegon and Company in his story. And thanks to Kevin McLeod and Kai Angle for allowing us to use their music in our production. And we'll end today, as usual, with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. Thank you so much to the following lovely people. AJ, Aegon VI, Alex, Amanda, Oakenfist, Nessie the Questing Beast, Arion, Biloba, Brian, Camille, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Christine, Maddie and Jessica, Clay, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Crimson Kate, Dag Blah Blah, Dan S, Dimitri B, Dennis, Direwolf, Eric, Esme, Emily of the Eerie, Ezra, Felix, Jeffrey, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Aiden, Ingvild, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Jamie the Joint Slayer, Brandon Beefish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, Vesivus, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Sonorion, the White Storm, Judson, Catherine, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Brash Candy, Kevin, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of what? Night of the Laughing Tree, Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lauren, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, first of his name, and Matt L, second of his name. And thanks as well to Lady Beatrix of House Grey, Melinda, Maester Mary, Michael M, Mitchell, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, Richard, Sam, Scott Greenseer, Scott, Sebastian, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift, Sherry, Cern, Spentrails, Bat Shiny Bastard, Tanner, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo, the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hama Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Virginie, Warren Halfhand, Whitney, Woodside for Life, Yvonne, and Zainab. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Spotify. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, or email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 